If you would, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the third chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 3. We'll commence our reading there at verse 22. John 3, starting there at the 22nd verse. Here, beloved, once more, uh, the word of the living God. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon, near to Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized. For John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, he, sorry, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless us richly under it this morning. Well, friend, we come really to the twilight of John's public ministry. This is, as it were, the, the almost final testimony that John will bear to Christ. We'll see in Matthew's gospel one later occasion as well, that through letter. But this is really the conclusion of John's public ministry. And I'd remind you, as I said to you when we first took up the ministry of John, that that not only was John to prepare the way of the Lord through his preaching, but John was also to give a very lively example for what that preparation looked like. In other words, God, through his prophets in the Old Covenant and through John in the New Testament, God used the prophets not only to speak his word and, and to call forth repentance, but but he also made his prophets pictures of repentance, pictures of those who mourn in Zion. Well, here you and I see John giving a testimony with his mouth and also with his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, of course, exhorts his disciples to follow Christ, and as he exhibits his heart to them, he also shows them how this looks, what it looks like to truly behold the Lamb. I want us to see that this way this evening, sorry, this morning. I want us to see here John, of course, speaking of his own ministry 
in the context of redemptive history, but I want us to see also how he gives us an example for all piety. He shows us what it is really to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Now, as I said to you already, this is really the the penultimate witness that John will give publicly to Christ. And you'll notice that this comes in light of an occasion. Verses 22 to 24, you have the baptism of Christ's disciples. Um, In this text, you have here that Christ, he baptized. Uh, Most commentators, I think for good reason, see it that Jesus commissioned his disciples to baptize. It was in his name that they were baptizing. But that provokes a question. And the question is what you have in verses 25 and 26. It was a question, the text says, about purifying. Now, you recognize, first of all, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but the question is really a joint question. It's one that comes from the Jews, and it's one that comes from the disciples of John. There are two distinct parties that are in view here. And in the original text, it's very clear, they both had the same question. And what was the question? The question essentially was this. Is Jesus' baptism something more than John's? And if you reflect on the deputation that was sent to John in John chapter 1, you'll remember that, that the Jews had their own question. That question was, well, is John's baptism more than the Mosaic purifications? So putting all of those together, you could say, is Jesus' baptism more than John's? As John's baptism was something more than the Mosaic purifications in the law. That's the question. And then in verses 27 to 36, John replies with rebuke. And friend, I would have you notice just at the beginning that this rebuke is well-merited and it's well-reasoned. You'll notice here that he gives the rebuke itself in verses 27 to 30. That's our text this morning. And then verses 31 to 36, which God willing will take up next Lord's Day morning. He supplies us its reason. But really, the crux of John's reply is found in perhaps the most famous verse out of this pericope, and that is verse 30. This is the essence of John's response to the question. He must increase, and I must decrease. The increasing there, evidently in its context, means the gaining of influence, the gaining of followers, the gaining of affection, as John here interprets it. And John says it is right for Christ to gain all of those things and for me to decrease from all of the same as well. Now, friend, if you and I have been paying attention to John's ministry up to this point, you'll recognize that John's reply here is certainly not unexpected. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised by John's reply. Verses, verses uh, 19 to 29, you remember in chapter 1, when the deputation from Jerusalem, from the Sadducees and the Pharisees, come to John, he urgently, urgently strives to direct their attention away from himself and to Christ. And you remember in verse 29, when he says those famous words, Behold the Lamb of God, you remember that that's spoken as something of a correction. They were sending deputations to John when really they ought to have been communicating to Christ, who John reminds them is in your midst. 
And so John finally, almost at a point of exasperation, one might imagine, he says, Behold the Lamb, not me, I'm the voice, He. He is the one who is the Lord coming to His temple, as we see in John chapter 2. He is the Lamb that all of the law had been pointing toward. In other words, friend, what you have in John 3 here is the very same thing you have in John 1, where John urgently tells sinners to direct their gaze to Christ, away from him, to Jesus and him alone. And what's striking about this friend, of course, is John's identity in his office. Christ says of them, of course, verse 11 of chapter of Matthew 11, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Friend, if that's the case, can we not make a, an argument from the greater to the lesser in this text? If one is so great as John the Baptist certainly was, is so careful to drive the attention of men away from himself and to Christ, how much more so should we do the same? How much more so should that disposition be found in us? And so, friend, what this text teaches us here is that all men, Men must be zealous for Christ's exaltation. John is not only urging them to do the same, he's showing them what this looks like. Men must be zealous for Christ's exaltation. And I want us to look at this as John himself provides it for us in this text. I want us to see this negatively and positively. I want us to see this negatively uh, through the disciples of John and the Jews that we find in this text. They are an example of what we'll call party zeal. Party zeal. Whereas John gives us a picture of what is truly pious zeal. Those are our two points this morning. And so I want us to look, first of all, at the Jews and the disciples of John in our text. In verse 26, you have the question. The question is, it's a loaded one. I'll just read it again. Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all come to him. Now, as you read that text, friend, you and I are supposed to recognize not only is this a loaded question, it's also an accusatory one. I want you to notice just a few things from it. First of all, I want you to recognize that in this moment, what really the disciples of John are saying is, Master, Rabbi, you had a following in the desert beyond Jordan. And this man kept company with you. Jesus of Nazareth, he walked with you. You were friends. And moreover, you, you, you had done him a great kindness in, in saying that this is the one who is the Lamb. You bore witness to him. And surely has he not betrayed your friendship and betrayed your kindness by stealing from you those followers that would otherwise attend on your ministry. Friend, if you read the text carefully, that's precisely the sense of the question. They, they are accusing Christ of, as it were, defrauding John of something that was John's and John's only. It's a staggering thing, isn't it? To say that the Lord of glory was somehow betraying 
John, the great forerunner. And friend, what this teaches us here, and we'll see this we'll see this more clearly, I hope, in the next several minutes. What we see here is an expression of what one could call party zeal. Party zeal, just to define it very briefly, is it's when a body of people exist and act for itself as its own and principal end. When a body exists and acts for itself as its own principal end. So you see that in the disciples of John. They had an incredible following. Even secular history bears witness to the fact that John's ministry was well attended. And what you recognize here is that these disciples, they, 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 unlike those that we saw at the end of John 1, they did not behold the Lamb, they did not go after Christ, they kept with the forerunner. They kept with the voice in the wilderness. And as you come to Matthew 11, even as you look at this text, the fact that they continued to attend on his ministry was no small vexation to John. John urgently strove to drive them to Christ, but very few apparently went. These ones, no, these ones stayed with the ministry of the voice rather than going to the substance of the covenant of grace to Christ. And friend, what that manifestly indicates to us is that these ones enjoyed being under John's light. They enjoyed being part of this body. And they weren't the only ones either, were they? I want you to recognize that there's a strange kind of friendship that you and I encounter in this text. One between the Jews who were not disciples of John and the Jews who were disciples of John. Now, it's a strange kind of friendship when you consider that at the end, and the deputation at the end of chapter 1, the, the Pharisees send their deputation not only to ask about John's identity, but to really tender a tacit rebuke. They, they, they really wanted to ask John not who was he, but, but who did he think he was, that kind of thing. There was a kind of tenuous, complicated relationship between the Pharisees and John's ministry, but here, suddenly they seem to be all of same, of same purpose. They've found somewhat of a common ground. And friend, all of that indicates that these were people, these were men, who were zealous after their own party, their own name, their own place and position, more than they were for the glory of Christ. This is party zeal. And throughout the scriptures, we see other examples of this. Uh, of course, probably the most well-known is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There are contentions among you, says Paul. Every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. In the Christian church, party zeal too can exist. When people strive for a name, for a legacy, for their own society over Christ, you have the same thing that's manifest in our text among the disciples of John and the Jews that were with them. And friend, you can see this characterized also throughout the scriptures. You see this perhaps in a way that's a bit subtle. You see this, first of all, of course, in the life of David. You remember whenever Joab slays Abner. You remember David's reply. He says, 
these men of the sons of Zeriah be too hard for me? Now, friend, I, I, I recognize that we are often looking at that text, seeing just their blind zeal. But there is something more to that that David's telling us. Joab and all of his brothers could not handle being slighted so by Abner to have their brother killed. Even if it was contrary to the cause of God, they must exact their revenge. Even if it was against David, their rightful king, even if it was against his wishes, they must demonstrate to the world that vengeance is theirs. And friend, that also is party zeal. And you see this even among the disciples of Christ. Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are. A friend, that also is party zeal, but perhaps in a bit more of a subtle way. Here, you remember James and John, they're asking that question because their master had been slighted. But friend, if they've been paying attention to Christ's ministry, should they have asked that at all? Is that not an expression of their desire, even to go contrary to the will of their master, um, simply to serve their own purposes? All of those are examples, characterizations of this party zeal. And friend, in our text, you see how far that zeal will go. It will go so far as to say that the Lord of glory was somehow taking glory to himself that was not his by seemingly taking away from John's ministry. Friend, just for a name, for a legacy, for a party, these ones would defraud the Lord of glory of what is rightfully his. And friend, this is present in the church today as well. And whenever a church exists but doesn't know the truths for why they exist, the principal cause for their existence becomes party zeal. When folks don't know the distinctives of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and they exist principally to exist as Reformed Presbyterians, friend, that too is party zeal. Uh, this is a bit of a bypath, but this is why teaching the distinctive principles of the denomination are so important. It is a true antidote to party zeal. It's a true way of making sure that you and I we pursue the glory of Christ, not just the exaltation of a name or a legacy. Now, if that is party zeal, if that is what the text shows us, is not true zeal for Christ, then what is pious zeal? And we see that in John. And again, if we go back to verse 30, we see that depicted for us so powerfully. He must increase and I must decrease. And, and again, this is the epitome of John's ministry, as we've already said. This is, and this is a true answer to what John is, is, really, is really saying here. He's saying very pointedly, all that you have said up to this point, speaking to his disciples, indicates that you would have my exaltation over Christ's. And now he says, the order, you've entirely, you've entirely changed it. No, he must increase, and I decrease. That's the proper order. Now, you see this in several ways. You see that this pious zeal aims exclusively at Christ's glory, starting at, very, at the verse 27. 
a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Now, this is a wonderful check to the kind of pride that John discerned in his disciples and in the Jews that were asking this question. First of all, he checks the idea that there was somehow an intrinsic goodness, a self-generated merit in John's ministry, as though John's ministry could stand of itself. Obviously, they've misunderstood him entirely. That's what John is saying. John is saying very poignantly about his own ministry that if there was any good that came from it, it was because heaven, it came from heaven. But I want you to notice that he doesn't simply refer this to his own ministry. He makes it a universal. A man, he says, can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. So he says not even himself, but anyone. Anyone who who profits under the ministry of another, they must attribute the good they have received only to God. There is no intrinsic goodness, no intrinsic goodness, no derived benefit from a ministry that is from itself. If there is anything that is profitable from a ministry, it is only from God. The ministry is but an instrument. God the artificer. And so what John does here is he checks their logic. He says, you would have the instrument exalted over the author. Now, what you see here then, friend, is an application of the very truth that we encountered in verse 16 of chapter 1. You remember John's record of Christ was such that he said, of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. John says in this text that that's also true of him. Let him be the greatest minister in his generation. And at the end of the day, as it were on his tombstone, all that could be written was here lies one who had received of his fullness. That's what John says to them all. And friend, it's a staggering part of John's ministry. More staggering because this is really the close of his public witness to Christ. All that, all that was good from John's ministry, he, ta- he traces back to Christ. I would make, I'd, I'd remind you, friend, here, that this pious zeal, which, which would leave men to, to, to leave off any, any desire to, to exalt their own worth and, and only to exalt Christ, John presents that to us not as some great, some, some incredible work that overcomes nature and reason. Not at all. John, in in this verse, tells us very pointedly that that it is only reasonable for men to seek Christ's exaltation alone. It is unreasonable to exalt the instrument over the author. Pride is unreasonable. Pride is foolish. It doesn't just lead to foolishness, friend. In this text, we're told it is contrary to reason. And John is so here, he's checking their logic. He's saying, you're you're not just misguided. Your thinking is absolutely faulty. But then to reinforce this, he comes to one of the most powerful images that John gives us in his ministry. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. Verse 29. Now, 
This is in response to what the disciples of John and what the Jews have spoken. And you remember, they say there at verse 26, all men come to him. So what does John say? In response to that, he says, if the bride is with the bridegroom, if all of these ones are truly believing and clinging to him, then all that I see there is the bride and the bridegroom united. Well, friend, that's powerful and that preaches, doesn't it? Whenever a congregation of God's people gather, looking to Christ by faith, to sit under his ordinances, to hear his voice, John says there he sees the bride and the bridegroom united. We'll press forward here just a moment longer. Because that's not all that he says. He draws himself into the image as well. He says, The friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now the image that you and I have to have here is actually the same one that you and I considered in our mission on the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. You remember how marriages, or sorry, how wedding ceremonies were, were conducted Prior to going to the house of the father, sorry, to the house of the bridegroom's father, there would be a, a period of waiting uh, with the bridal party. And they would wait until they heard the friend of the bridegroom come to announce the arrival of the bridegroom. And that's, of course, in the parable whenever all of the virgins come out with their lamps, waiting to meet with the bridegroom. But you remember that, that there was a considerable amount of time from the moment that the bridegroom was announced to the moment that he arrived. In fact, it was customary for, for several friends to announce at various intervals throughout that night that the bridegroom was coming, even if he didn't come for several more hours. What John here is saying is, in this moment he rejoices as the one who had announced his coming and who could hear his voice as he approached. He was not like the prophets under the Old Covenant who, who announced his coming but were centuries removed. He announced his coming and lo, his voice was just behind him. He heard the bridegroom's voice and so he rejoices. It's a powerful picture. But friend, what you and I are to learn here is that John is saying that in that moment his work is done. In that moment his work is finished. He was the great forerunner, and now Christ has come. And so it's only reasonable, he says here, that his joy would therefore be fulfilled. I want you to notice that last line there, because this is one of the most striking things that, that really show us the heart of true piety. John doesn't simply say that he yields all glory and honor to Christ. He says he rejoices to do so. It's the thing that gives him the greatest delight. He was but a servant, though illustrious among so many other servants of God. He was a servant still. And all that he craved was just that moment whenever he would see Christ lifted high, the bride and the bridegroom United. Friend, what this teaches us is the very thing that you and I read in Philippians 2. 
As you look through that second chapter of that epistle, you'll notice, as I said to you already, that there are three examples. The example of Paul, the example of Timothy, the example of Epaphroditus. And all three of those examples have really one single theme that threads them all, and that is this, that they give their lives for Christ. If you just go back to, John, to, to, to Paul, he is pleased if his life is poured out as a sacrifice for the faith of the Philippians. And why? For the glory of Christ. Timothy is described as one who sought not his own things, but the things which are Christ Jesus. Epaphroditus, you remember, at verse 30 of Philippians 2, is described as one who is willing to expend his life for Christ. Friend, what we find in that text is the very same thing that you find in ours this morning. It's this idea that, that, friend, there is no true piety without this earnest desire that, that we would decrease, that he might be exalted. Friend, if you remember Philippians 2, that exhortation was not just to ministers. It begins, you remember, by urging all in the church in Philippi, all of the churches in Macedonia, to do the same. What does that look like? Well, friend, I'm not preaching to ministers this morning, but, but allow, me to make, allow me to make one application to ministers. This is truly against a self-serving and self-promoting ministry. This is one of the great dangers of our age as we live among social influencers. Uh, friend, the minister of the gospel is to have a disposition as we find in John. In fact, again, making an argument from the greater to the lesser, if such a minister as John was, was possessed of such a heart for Christ's glory and his only, how much more should the rest of us? There's an anecdote that I love. It's between, sorry, it regards a conversation between James Durham and Andrew Gray. It was in the 1650s in, in Scotland. Uh, both of those men were ministers in Glasgow at the time. James Durham and Andrew Gray were not terribly far removed in terms of age, about 10 years difference between the two. And their manses were close to each other at the time. And so on the Lord's Day morning, they would walk together, arm in arm, as they would go to their various meeting houses. Andrew Gray was very easily and quickly regarded as one of the greatest preachers in Scotland in his generation. Durham was not, strikingly. And what took place in Glasgow at the time under Cromwell was that there was opportunity for those who were part of one congregation to go and to worship freely in another. And so many in Durham's congregation began to attend the ministry of Andrew Gray. As Durham and Gray were walking by Gray's meeting house, Durham remarked that the meeting house that Gray was to preach in was thronged with people. And he, and he said to Gray simply that, that you will have a hard time finding standing room to preach. Gray turned around and responded, and he said, they must be fools to leave your ministry and attend upon mine. To which Durham responded only this, that so long as the Redeemer is exalted, that's all that he craved. 
for ministers of the gospel, friend, that that needs to be our disposition. The age of self-promotion needs to die. And this earnest desire only for Christ's exaltation must be lifted high. But to all, friend, as John is a picture not only of ministerial godliness, but of true piety, this leads us to ask a question. Friend, are we more anxious to have others think well of us than we are to have them think well of Christ? That was the problem with John's disciples. They reversed the order. So which order is it for us? In the church of God, in the world, would we be pleased, even if our name was was trodden under the earth, just that his was exalted? That even our best of friends and families thought poorly of us, but thought highly of him? Friend, could we be pleased with such a thing? Are we pleased that he must increase and that we decrease? To press that further as we close, friend, what if your name was forgotten? What if your name was forgotten in the church? What if, to press this a step further, What if Christ was exalted in promoting others around you and not you? I think that's perhaps where this becomes all the more complicated and difficult. What if Christ is exalted in exalting your neighbor and not you? Could you be content in Christ's exaltation in that way? John tells us pointedly, This is part and parcel of beholding the Lamb aright, of being one who truly is a servant of Christ. The comfort in this text, friend, is this. That God would have us know that he is jealous for his people's hearts. I want you to recognize in this text that John is employing a logic that is really two-edged. On the one hand, he shows the unreasonableness of his disciples who would insist that John receive all glory and that Christ would, would not steal, as it were, from his auditory. But John, John urges that it's right for Christ to have such exaltation because he is the bridegroom. And if the congregation throngs him, all that it is is the bridegroom and the bride being joined together as they ought to be lawfully. That's the one edge of the sword. The other edge of the sword is this. That if John did not have the sentiment, he was an adulterous, an adulterous man. If he sought more to win the hearts of Christ's bride for himself than for Christ. He was not just derelict in his function as friend of the bridegroom. He was adulterous. And what that text teaches us, friend, here is that Christ would have his ministers know that he, Jesus, is jealous over his people's hearts. He will not allow them to be espoused to another. Not to another. However illustrious their ministry may be. 
he would have the bride's heart. And he would have it exclusively as his. And so, friend, what you see in this text is that Christ loves your love. Your love is not meritorious toward him. And we lament how cold it is. But this text reminds us that he's jealous over it. He and he only would have it. But as we close, friend, the exhortation is twofold from this text. The first is for us to acknowledge that this is not, this is not a picture of mature Christianity. This is a picture of basic Christianity. This is a picture of what it means to be resigned to Christ. And therein, friend, lies the warning. If this disposition is not found in me, friend, I need to acknowledge that this is not, this is not because I lack maturity. If this disposition is not found in me at all, it demonstrates I've not submitted to him. The second thing is for us also, friend, it's to, it's to urge our own hearts to seek Christ's exaltation above all else. Let self-promotion, let all of those things die. Let it be that you and I strive only for his glory in all aspects of life. May this characterize us as his people. Friend, would it not be wonderful that this was our testimony? That this congregation was pleased that we would be forgotten, but just that Christ would be lifted high. May that be our testimony to this generation. Amen.